Well, last week was kind of tabernacle show and tell, if you were here, if you remember that. We, we had the whole slide projection of some great artistic renderings of the tabernacle. And as we're continuing in, remember, the whole theme that we are focusing on in Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews, because the people are undergoing persecution... And some are being tempted to fall away from their faith. Some indeed are falling away from their faith. That the writer of Hebrews is revealing Christ to them again. By His words, as led by the Holy Spirit, He is presenting Christ to them so that they shift the focus of their lives, their eyes back upon Christ, return to their faith, and receive all the grace that they need to endure the persecution that they are enduring to the glory of God. And so He's teaching them, who is Jesus Christ, particularly as your great High Priest in Heaven? And for us here... It is, it is the incredible revelation of all that God has done in His perfect order and His perfect timing to fulfill all things in creating the very means by which mankind can return to its originally created state in the garden, and that is absolute union with God and fellowship with Him forever. And by that fellowship, to be made like Him throughout eternity. Okay? And so last week we focused on how our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled even the setup of the tabernacle. Remember we laid it out where you had the outer courts, you had the, te- the altar of sacrifice, you had the brazen, uh, the brass water container, which was for the ritualistic washing. We have sacrifice, we have baptism, we have the holy place in which we have the lampstand. Where they were always lit, and we had the table of showbread, where we had the twelve pieces or the twelve loaves of bread always there. Of course, pointing to the fact that Jesus said, "I am what the light of the world," and I am also what when you look at the at the table of showbread, I am the bread of life. Even revealing Himself back in the old covenant. He fulfilled these things. And then, of course, the most holy place behind the veil where there was just the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant, where the priest would go once a year and splatter the blood on the mercy seat and pray for his own forgiveness and the forgiveness of all of God's people once a year. And the glory of God would show at the point at which God was saying to the priest, I have covered your sins and I've covered the sins of my people. And then, and only then, would he leave. So you had this picture of the tabernacle. I do not have time to go any further than that because we do need to move on. But now we're going to move. We looked at how the old covenant tabernacle was insufficient according to the writer. And now we're going to look at how the sacrifice that was offered was insufficient and how it's fulfilled in Christ. Today will be part one of this. Because we're going to see a series of teachings about how Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would offer Himself and what His blood does for our salvation and why it had to be shed according to the order of God. So when we concluded last week, we concluded with the reading of Hebrews 9, 13 through 15. And I want to start with that today to refresh our memory and say a few things about that. Uh, Matt, I think you've got Hebrews 9, 13. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Thank you. So if the blood of bulls and goats didn't work, in other words, if it cleansed them in an imperfect way, one of the things it was failing to do, we're going to see, is it was covering their sins. But what was, what was that sacrifice in the Old Covenant not able to do? It was not able to transform the human person. It would cover their sins, okay? But they were never able to become like God, moving away from sin. They did not have the grace of God within them in the Old Covenant to move towards Him and to have the power against all those temptations and the sin nature that was within them. That's what was lacking. And that's why he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we begin asking the question, What is it? Why the need for Christ to shed His blood? And what does His shed blood do for our salvation? Because it is for the forgiveness of sins, but it is for more than just the forgiveness of sins. Because the blood of the bulls and goats covered their sins. So there has to be more if that was incomplete, is what the writer is saying. And that's what we begin to look at today. And the writer says, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience? First, let's understand the word conscience here. Now, if I did, if I did a word association on conscience, it could be that one of the first things that comes to your mind is Jiminy Cricket for Pinocchio. And that's not bad, to be quite frank. Because what was the purpose of Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio's life? as long as he was with him, to tell him right from wrong. To tell him good from evil. To keep him on the right path to become a real man. That's actually not far from a very Christian theology. What happened to Disney? Right? But it's really not. The conscience, this word conscience used by the writer of Hebrews, it means this. It means the soul. What he points to is he says the conscience has its origin in the soul itself. Not just the mind where we think about things, but the actual soul of the human person. The word says it's the soul as distinguishing between what is righteous, what is morally righteous, and what is evil. But more than that, prompting us to do the former and shun the latter commending the one and com- and condemning the other. So it's, it's in our soul. If we are one with Christ, we have within us the very language of the Holy Spirit, direction of the Holy Spirit. Then we are, when we are faced with any temptation in our soul, something wells up in us first discerning good from evil. 
That's the first part is discernment from the conscience. We see that temptation through God's eyes. And when we see that temptation through God's eyes, the temptation to act, the temptation to speak, the temptation to not speak at times, but when we see it through God's eyes, it is also accompanied, get this, the conscience is also accompanied with the power, the grace of God to condemn what is evil and commend what is good. We discern, but then we move and we act. And it's all based on our union with God, producing in our souls that transformation to where we see the way He sees and are empowered by His power to move the way that He would have us move. Does that make sense? And so the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to read to you in St. Dimitri's writing, Archbishop Dimitri, who we've been using as a a commentator on on Hebrews, he writes, but he also quotes St. John Chrysostom on this conscience statement. He says this, He shall purge your conscience from dead works, And well, he said, from dead works. If any man touched a dead body, he was polluted. And here, if any man touch a dead work, he is defiled through his conscience. Here he declared that it is not possible while one has dead works to serve the living God. For they are both dead and false. Let no man enter in here with dead works. For it was not fit that one should enter in who had touched a dead body. Much more one that touched dead works. And he goes on to say, By the offering of the blood of Christ, the conscience of man is purged from dead works. This is the second reference to dead works. They are dead because they did not free man's conscience from the hold of death. On the other hand, those ritual cleansings were external signs of the inner cleansing that came with redemption obtained by Christ. Henceforth, however, the character of the works, good works, performed by man is changed. Christ's sacrifice transforms the works of the believer so that they become living works. Isn't that that wonderful? What's he saying? Old covenant, if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. And you have to go through a ritual washing. He's referring to that law, the law of God. He's saying consider that dead body just like your dead works, Christians. Every time we act against our conscience, against the order of God, it produces dead works which shackle us. Shackle the soul. When one is engaged in dead works, they are not free to serve who? Christ. God. Okay? So the blood of Christ is shed not just for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ is shed for the cleansing of the soul, the conscience, and the transformation within us that takes place to where we begin to loathe those dead works and hunger and thirst for blessed righteousness. And then we are freed from dead works to serve the living Christ and the result 
is the living works of the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ through every believer. That's what he's saying. Okay? And in verse 15, he continues on. And for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now we've spoken many times and I'm going to remind us of who Christ is as our mediator. Okay? Jesus Christ, our mediator, again, just like Moses, stands between the creation of God, mankind, and God. And He pleads with God on man's behalf. Jesus Christ, one of the Holy Trinity, who never lost His divinity, took our humanity into heaven before the Father within Himself, and always pleads with the Father for mercy to be given to those who are in Him. And we comment on this often in this series. We have to never keep before our face how much, if we will only stay in Christ, remain in Him, how much the deck is stacked in the favor of the believer. Because Jesus has become covenant sacrifice, the blood shed. He has become the high priest that offers His own blood shed. He is our mediator pleading for mercy from the Father to lavish upon us who stay in Him and need it so desperately. He is the keeper of the covenant. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. Archbishop Dimitri says it this way, The priestly work of Christ by means of His death, established Him as the mediator of the new covenant or testament. He is both God and man. As such, He is the, listen to this, surety of the covenant and its mediator. And that word surety, the writer has already used in Hebrews chapter 7, 22, and he uses it again here. In Hebrews 7, 22, the writer says, Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. And I want to make sure that we understand that word surety. And I'm going to pick on our lawyer for this. Matt, come stand with me for just a second. I give you surety I won't embarrass you here for just a second. Karen, would you come stand up here as well? Show and tell again. Are you going to give me that same insurance? Nope. <laughs> just the lawyer. Okay. So... Here is what a surety is, and it is very much covenantal and contractual and business language. Okay? So, Karen is going to make a loan with a bank. It's going to take a loan out from the bank, so to speak. Let's call it a business loan. Keep it in business language. Okay? So, match the bank. Karen is the one taking out the loan. But she needs someone to come alongside her because the bank has said, I need a surety. I need a surety. An easy way to think of a surety, though it's not totally complete, but it's okay to use this, is a cosigner. A cosigner on a loan. Fair enough, right? I really do say right because I want to make sure we're on track here. This is what I read. You correct anything. All right. So I come alongside Karen. And I'm going to co-sign on this loan, which means that if Karen happens to fail on the loan, the bank has the surety that it's going to continue to be paid out. So the bank is not sweating when they make this contract. 
I, it, because of whatever reason, they said, you need a surety. She got a surety. I came alongside her. I signed for it so that if she faults on the loan, the loan won't fault. It's on me. Okay? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Fair enough? Yep. God bless you both. Sit down. <laughs> so when it says Jesus is the surety of the covenant... Jesus takes the idea of surety to a completely different level. Let me say why. Because if, if I decide to be the surety for Karen, in my mind, I'm going to make sure it's a low risk. I'm not going to co-sign with Karen if she has faulted on loans before. I'd be an idiot. Right? And yet, Jesus Christ knows from the get-go that we're going to fail on the loan. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, humankind will fail, will sin, will break covenant, so to speak. And yet, Jesus Christ has still placed Himself as the surety. Father in heaven, if this one fails and yet remains in me and cries out for mercy, I am the keeper of the covenant. Do you get that? How far the Trinity goes. That one of the Trinity would join humanity and would come alongside a humanity that is destined to fail at first and say, no, no, they're in me. This one's mine. I cover this as long as they stay in me. Oh, now there's the thing. It is relationship, this salvation. It's not a blank check. It's not a one sign a ticket to heaven. It is union with God eternally. So if we remain in Him, Christ is the surety. He is the keeper of the covenant that we might be saved. Yes, sir. Didn't they, didn't the people of that time understand the impact of when Christ said, your sins are forgiven, they understood the impact of it. Whenever they said, whenever Christ said, your sins are forgiven, they knew the impact of it. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they experienced it in that moment. Yeah. In that moment. I'll tell you why. This is a great question. If you didn't hear it, people who Christ said your sins are forgiven, did they feel the impact of this? Uh, not, because it wasn't a statement. He did something in that moment, didn't he? Let's, let me give you an example. You remember the, the scripture of the adulterous woman who's caught in adultery? And so the, 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 there's this little mob scene going on. It's actually appropriate to the Old Covenant law. By law, a woman caught in adultery, a person caught in adultery, was to be stoned to death. Okay? So they had their stones at the ready, and they bring her, and they place her up against the wall, and they see Jesus riding in the sand, which is another story. Very interesting, but another story for another time. And he looks at everyone with stones, and he says, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, the woman is not watching this. She knows what's coming. She's, she's braced herself for death and pain along the way. And so Jesus then, one by one, we know that they start dropping their stones and they go away. And, she, and He goes up to the woman and He says, Woman, where are your accusers? 
And that's the first time she looks around. And she says, there are none. And she says, neither do I accuse you. Go, I, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Do you not think that Christ, in that statement, by His Word, this is the same, this is the same one that by His Word created the whole universe. You remember this, right? So never, never take light His speaking. By His Word, you don't think that her conscience was cleansed in that moment. Huh? And that she followed Him. Absolutely. So thank you for that. So again, Jesus is the surety in the way that we described it of this covenant on our behalf coming alongside of us always who remain in Him. Who has Hebrews chapter 9 verses 16 through 22? That is... Deacon, you got that? For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses spoke, he had spoken in every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and goats with water, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Okay. We remember... Jesus is speaking to Hebrews that understand covenantal language and they remember the story of how the covenant was made with Moses. Before we get to those details, the first thing he says, he goes back to legal language that everyone would understand and we would understand today. He says, for where there is a testament, that is a will and testament. Everybody, we know what that is, right? Where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity of the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power while the testament while the testator lives. Yes, right. So a person comes up with their last will and testament. Debbie and I have it for whenever something will happen to us. It's in place. And that testament dictates inheritance. What to do with all of the things that are mine. Okay, and hers. (laughs) What to do with all that is ours. Right? It has no power to pass on until what? The death of the testator. Therefore, he's using this language to help understand that all of the inheritance, all of the benefits of the kingdom of God, all of the adoption making us sons and daughters and co-heirs with Jesus Christ of all that the Father has to offer could not happen until Christ what? Dying. Dying. His death. The testament could not be in force and eternally as we've been speaking 
until the death of the testator, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he goes back, and this is what we want to focus on. This is a fascinating thing to see again how Christ fulfills even the making of the covenant with Moses. I'm going to read this part again. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, remember that, once the law is given, Moses came down from Mount Sinai and verbalized it. The law was given to the people verbally. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, then he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the book of the covenant and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled the blood, with blood both the tabernacle, remember the image of the tabernacle, it was there at that point, and all the vessels of the ministry. What does that mean? He went in to the holy, he, he sprinkled the, the, in the tabernacle, he sprinkled the table of showbread, he sprinkled the lampstand, the incense, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, every vessel used in the tabernacle was sprinkled with blood. And according to the law, almost all things are purified. Remember that. Purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So get that picture again. Moses, with the blood of the sacrifice... Not only sprinkling all the people, but all of the, all of the vessels used that God said to be used in His worship, in prayer. Everything else was purified, was set aside. Consecrated is the word. You've heard me say that word before. If something is consecrated, something normal, something of the earth, something ordinary is taken and it's consecrated by God and it's made unordinary. Extraordinary. It's set aside only for the use of God. Do you get that? And that's what was happening with all the vessels in... <clears throat> excuse me. In the... Uh, everything they use for the worship of God. Now, listen to Archbishop Dimitri. I've read Hebrews so many times and been blessed by everything I'm sharing with you and always there's something new that God reveals about Christ and who He is and how far He's gone to save us. And this happened to me again. It happened to me again in this particular passage. Listen to Archbishop Dimitri. The water, the scarlet wool, and hyssop, and the blood are all things used in the purification rites. Water for cleansing, wool dyed scarlet red is the symbolic of purity. Hyssop, used to ceremonially sprinkle blood or water on the altar, the sacred vessels, the Ark of the Covenant, etc. The writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see that all of these items prefigured the sealing of the new and eternal covenant as Christ would be crucified on the cross. 
they all have their part in the events that would take place. Let me share them with you. When the soldiers mocked Christ, what did they put around him jokingly? A robe. What color was it? Scarlet. They used a sponge filled with vinegar. And what did they place it on offering it to Christ? How did they offer Him? Hyssop. Finally, the soldiers pierced His side. And what flowed from our Lord? Blood and water. All of the items that God told Moses to use to set apart His people to Himself in the covenant to set apart all of the vessels used for worship, every item shows up at the crucifixion and the bloodshedding of our Lord Jesus Christ that would seal the new and eternal covenant. Do you see that? At some point, it has to dawn on us that this is far more than a creative writing story. That the order of God is so perfect... And it's so perfect on behalf of man and for man's salvation that here we have in the crucifixion the fulfillment of the sealing of the covenant, fulfilling what was done in the old covenant when it was sealed with Moses. Do you see that? Okay. I want to conclude with these few thoughts. The shedding of blood is the seal of every covenant God made with mankind. And we see it also in the seal of the new covenant, which we just looked at. Okay, Moses took the blood and used the hyssop to sprinkle the book of the law in the new covenant, then the tabernacle, the sacred items, and all these things were sealed and purified and consecrated. St. John Chrysostom says this, So in Christ's sacrifice, where is the book? You don't see it. You don't see a book. At the crucifixion. You had a book and when he sealed it with Moses, right? The book of the covenant. So in Christ's sacrifice, where is the book? He purified the minds of His people. They themselves then were the books of the new covenant. And where are the vessels in worship? Again, they are God's people. And where is the tabernacle? Again, They are God's people, for I will live in them, he says, and move among them. What is he saying here? He's saying that the shedding of Christ's blood, his offering it to the Father, and you see him at the Last Supper even saying, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is for the purification of your minds and the healing and soothing of your conscience. And when he talks about where is the book, the people are the book by virtue of their minds being cleansed, he goes back to Jeremiah 31, 33, where the prophecy that would be fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant is this. But this is the covenant God said that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law where? In their minds. And write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be My people. The vessels set apart for the worship of God by the blood of Christ through our baptism, and every time we receive blessed Eucharist, the blood of Christ. We are the sacred vessels set aside to worship 
and glorify God. We are the ones who are now consecrated to God for His glory, for His worship. In fact, again, St. Archbishop Dimitri, he writes, The effect of this purging is man's being enabled to serve the living God. The God who is life and gives life according to John 6. To serve the living God means two things. To worship God and to serve Him or do His will in this life. Those who are now reborn in Christ serve the living God by their participation in the worship in the heavenly sanctuary into which they enter in Christ and minister to all who are in need. That's the picture of each one of you living stones, folks. You have been freed from dead works by the blood of Christ cleansing you from a dead conscience and bringing you to life in Christ. That you may be separated from those dead works and attend to the living works which are the worship of God and the love and care of one another and those outside of the body of Christ. Those are the living works of God. And then he says the sprinkling of blood on the tabernacle. Again he says you are the tabernacle. I remind you of the words of St. Paul from 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple, the tabernacle? Your body is the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are. If you can breathe after I say this, I'm glad because you're still with me, but this is hard. You are the holy of holies. You are the most holy place. Because in this flesh and blood, frail as it is, dwells the fullness of God. And where did God dwell in the tabernacle? In the holy of holies. I'm going to ask a question that I don't want an answer to. Now. I want you to wrestle with. Is this. I don't want you to ask it to yourself. I want you to ask it to your Lord who has the answer. Lord. Why can I not see myself as the holy of holies? Why can I not see myself as the Holy of Holies? Because here's the reality. When we begin to live in such a way into the truth that God has not only spoken by His Word, but performed through the incarnation, the death of Christ, His resurrection, ascension, every living stone has become the Holy of Holies, the place where the Most High God dwells. And collectively, when we gather together, the living stones are put together in the blessed tabernacle of worship, and we enter into the worship of heaven eternal. Why can I not see myself as the Holy of Holies? When we begin to see ourselves like that, there is no question as to the transformation in our lives, our behaviors, our abilities to overcome sin and temptation and to keep ourselves pure before God by the grace of God that He has given will be made manifest. So ask the question, what keeps me 
Lord, you are the only one that knows. Is it my sin? Is it my shame? Is it my besetting sins? Is it my, my will that constantly... God knows why in each one of you and in me. I ask you to ask the question. Hmm? Let's stand.